And take your Bible, turn to Galatians chapter 6, Galatians chapter 6, and we will pick up where we left off in verse 6. As you're turning there, I'd just like to welcome our guests. We have a few guests from Ireland, the country of Ireland, all the way from the other side of the globe. Uh, Brian's family's in town, so if you have a chance, say hi to them, make them feel welcome. Uh, we, I don't know if you know this, but we just one of the hymns we just sang is written by an Irishman. Yeah, this is the power of the cross. Uh, Keith and Kristen Getty, a very, uh, very rich and godly couple. So, welcome. Today, I'm going to pick up and con- uh, where Paul continues with the theme of being a healthy, unified Christian. And I've entitled the message, Part 2, of How to Be a Good Church Member. How to be a good church member. We understand that the commands written in the second half of this letter, they're written to Christians who are in the church in the region of Galatia. So these commands, to put it another way, they're commandments to Christians on how to be good Christians. Okay? That's basically the, the, the thesis, the theme of this whole section. So we're going to learn more about how we ought to relate to one another and treat one another. Two weeks ago, if you remember, if you were here, I delivered four principles of being a good, healthy church member. And they were, number one, don't be a hypocrite, because Ephesians, uh, excuse me, Galatians 5.25 says to, uh, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. In other words, if we are living by the Spirit, we should also act like it. The second principle was don't be conceited. Paul commands the Galatians not to become boastful, challenging one another, and envying one another, so we shouldn't be conceited believers. Thirdly, the, the third principle was don't be non-confrontational. Galatians 6.1 commands us to restore a brother caught in a sin, which requires gentle confrontation. Fourthly, don't be secluded. Paul commands us to bear one another's burdens. In the strict context, it's talking about a Recovering sinning brethren, but generally we all have burdens that we all could have help with, right? And that context, uh, that, that point is clear from the context in the following. Now, I'm going to bring to you four more principles of being a good, healthy church member. So that you can be as healthy as you can possibly be to be used by God to build and strengthen His church. Very simple. If you want to be used to build and strengthen the church, both both universally and locally, you need to be healthy. You need to be spiritually healthy. Before we dive back into the trees, though, it's important to refocus and regain the bird's eye view of this letter so we don't misinterpret it. Some have said that this is Paul's firest epistle because he comes down hard against the Judaizers who have infiltrated the church in Galatia and had bewitched them. He had bewitched them by spreading the false doctrine of salvation by works and not by faith alone. So Paul hears of this, he hears of this, and he's had enough of it. So he does not want to tolerate this false teaching as a good under-shepherd wouldn't. He does not want to allow wolves to come into the sheepfold. So the Holy Spirit prompts him to pen this inspired letter. Now remember that this book is all about guarding the gospel of grace. All about guarding the gospel of grace. It's about defending the absolute and universal truth that man is saved by faith, 
justified by faith and faith alone in the Savior alone. The very centerpiece of this marvelous revelation is in ver- excuse me, chapter 2, verse 16. Chapter 2, verse 16, the most important verse in the whole book. Nevertheless, Paul writes, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law, since by no works of the law, no flesh will be justified. He can't say any clearer. So the theme of Galatians, that justification is not salvation by faith plus works. It's not believe in the Lord Jesus and be circumcised. It's not believe in the Lord Jesus and be baptized. It's not believe in the Lord Jesus and be a good moral person. It's not believe in the Lord Jesus and, 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 and. So by now, I hope, if you've been coming to Snoqualmie Valley Bible Church for a while, I hope you're bulldogmatically convinced about this truth. If you believe you can stand before God and qualify to be in His presence, your eternal dwelling place solely rests on the righteousness of Christ alone. He defeated death, we just sang. He took the wrath. He bore the wrath. And He did it alone. Now, there are two implications of the truth, right? Two implications of justification by faith alone. The first, we all, like the Scripture calls us, to examine ourselves to see whether or not we're in the faith. By asking yourself, if I died today and had to face judgment, what would my plea be and why? You stand before God, and He asks to give you an account, and ask you, why should you be allowed into my Perfect, holy, spotless presence. How would you answer that question? If you don't know, come talk to me. Because if you don't know, that, answer that question, then I have to be honest and say then you are not on your way to heaven. The second implication is that we believers should have a deeper understanding of justification, and that should give you an unquenchable zeal to be genuinely concerned about the salvation of your friends and relatives. Including, listen, including those who do profess Christ. Understand this. A person's profession of faith means nothing. Why would I say such a thing? Because Jesus said, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. Okay? So understand justification clearly so that it will give you a zeal to care for other salvation and a zeal to examine yourself. Now in this latter section of Galatians, he is speaking to genuine Christians regarding the practical outworking of the effect of justification by faith alone. In chapter 5, Paul explained the proper use of Christian liberty and the indicatives of the fruit of the Spirit, right? The fruit of the Spirit is. And then chapter 6, he continues his teaching relating to Christians conducting themselves with other Christians. So now we'll pick up in verse 6, 
which is where we'll find the next principle of being a good, healthy church member. You ready? Number one, don't be selfish and stingy. If you want to be a healthy church member, don't be selfish and stingy. Look at verse 6. The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Now we see this and we are reminded of the fact that at the heart of Christian ministry is the teaching and preaching of God's word. And I, 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 I slaughtered that horse last week, so I'm not going to go over it again <laughs> when I preach from 2 Timothy 2.15. Now, but we see this, this ministry of teaching, it's a reciprocal task. He says, the one who has taught the word, which is the sheep, it's the congregation, the hearers primarily, and it could also extend to counselees. You know, it could extend to students. You know, when you, when you go to a college or a seminary university, you're paying the teacher a lot of money, aren't you? Because they're teaching you. So the one who has taught the word is to share all things with the one who teaches. Now, who is that? That's the teaching elder. Primarily the pastor. And perhaps also a good defense could be made to pay counselors in the church, which is why we have associate pastors in some churches, professors, some people who are just devoted to just teaching and not preaching. They deserve compensation as well. They are to share. Now this verb, to share, it's in the imperative, which means it's a command. And it comes from the Greek term koinoneo. Now maybe you've heard that term koinonia before, right? Anybody heard that word before, koinonia? It's the Greek word for fellowship. So don't think share as in a little kid shares his toy and wants it back in 30 seconds. Right? I have a little toddler, so that's, I see that almost all the time. He'll share it, but then he'll stand there and wait for someone to give it back to him. Right? He's, then he's done his part. He shared it. So don't think shared like that. Share, in this sense, carries the idea of partaking and participating which is to say that the congregant willingly allows their teacher to partake in all good things that they have. Now, the question that's raging in your mind right now is probably this. What are the good things Paul's talking about? Well, this is why I love expository preaching again. Because it forces me and you to deal with every verse in the Bible, even if it makes me uncomfortable, or you're uncomfortable, or if it's complex. Every, every now and again I come to a, a, a verse and I think, oh, I, see how, I think I see how that fits. But then as I study, sometimes it's discoverable that there are many qualified, gifted, more intelligent men than me that disagree with one another. This is one of those verses. The most common interpretation, and the one I think is right, of this verse is that the congregation should pay their pastors fairly. All good material things. Here's why, okay? I'm going to defend this. Listen. We consider the broad context, okay? The broad context meaning what the whole Bible says about the issue. Philippians 4:15. Paul said to the Philippians that the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. So Paul is talking about 
going from church to church and preaching, and the only one that had, had the kindness and generosity were the Philippians to take care of him physically. So he's commending them for that, okay? There are other examples, but for the sake of time, I'm not going to go there. But the immediate context is also the right argument to make. Paul uses the concept of sowing and reaping to talk about finances in other parts of Scripture. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. So when we get down later to the, later in the exposition, this idea of sowing and reaping also applies to how much or how well you share with the one who teaches. Another way to say it, if, if, if I am not able to be paid for my work, what do I got to do? I got to go get a job somewhere else. And guess what? What's the pragmatic effect of that? The teaching and preaching is going to be less, and it's going to be not as high quality. Does that make sense? It's not that I'm bringing to you the highest quality that exists in the world, but I'm able to give my best because I'm able and free to do it. So he's talking about it's good for the congregants to share all good material things with their teacher. These good things also, of course, could... uh, uh, it involves spiritual help, like words of encouragement, uh, prayers, intercessory prayers. But, but mainly, Paul's talking about financial remuneration here in this verse. Now, the concept of there being adequately paid pastors is biblical. And this might be obvious to some people, but, but there are some denominations and there are some Christians who don't believe that. I've experienced it. I've seen it. Maybe you have too. But here's why it's biblical. 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18 says, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard, especially those who are worn out from it, in other words, at preaching and teaching. Here's why Paul's talking about paying the pastor. Verse 18, For Scripture says, and he quotes Deuteronomy 25, You shall not muzzle the ox while it is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So the preacher here, he's likened to an ox. What's an ox? An ox is a strong workhorse, right? He's, he, he works hard. He does the hard stuff that men can't do. And the laborer, he's likened to a farmer who labors hard uh, to, to produce a crop. So the preacher, we learn from here, he does not just open up his Bible, read the text, jot down a few thoughts, recall a few stories from his personal life, and walk into the pulpit. It's not hard. not hard work. The preacher is supposed to be a laborer, like an ox. 2 Corinthians 9.14, Paul wrote, So also the Lord directed those, talking about Jesus, So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Okay? So there's much more that can be said about this, but just in general, that's why it is biblical and good for a church to compensate their pastor. Share good things with the one who teaches. So that's why it's important not to be selfish and stingy if you want to have a good, healthy church. Share your resources. Everyone justly knows they deserve fair compensation for your hard work, right? I mean, 
say, say, say pretend you're a construction worker for a minute. You work a long 40-hour week. How many of you would go up to the foreman and say, boss, I don't think I, I need a paycheck this week. I just, I, just, I just don't deserve it. Right? That's stupid. Nobody would do that, right? It's the same thing with the one who works hard at preaching and teaching. They are entitled to compensation. It's the same thing for that person. So, first principle of this morning, don't be stingy and selfish. The second principle for today is found in verses 7 and 8. Let's read that again. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So, what's the second principle? Don't be misled. Don't be misled. Paul says do not be deceived. That's what it means. Not to be misled. Don't be tricked. Now, you read that verse and you think, okay, what is Paul talking about there? Who are the Galatians being deceived by or by what? By whom? The Judaizers, right? You know that well by now. Galatians 3 verse 1, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who has cast a spell on you? Who has duped you? And who has misled you? So Paul, he's calling on the Galatians to stop being led astray by thinking that works, namely circumcision, was necessary for their salvation. Partaking of those rituals, partaking of maybe sacraments today, in order to earn favor with God, is not spiritual. It does nothing for you before God. It's, it's dead religion. It's flesh feeding. And that's what it does. Whenever you start to think that, that rituals or sacraments or works contribute to something, contribute to your justification, it just naturally breeds self-righteousness, right? That's why that hymn that um, Daniel chose, that I didn't, it was just providentially perfect, that song we just sang, how, how deep the Father's love for us, right? It was all him. It was all what he did. There was nothing that we could do to earn more merit than we have in Jesus. Right? Because if you think that there's merit to be, to be, to be gained, then what you're saying is that Christ's righteousness wasn't enough. One commentator says that it has always been and will continue to be false teachers who claim to teach in God's name or the most destructive. It is for that reason careful and consistent teaching of the full counsel of God is so important. Not only for building up the church, but also for protecting it against weakened, protect it against being weakened and destroyed. So, I've said before, I'll say it again. I want you to remember the text. The text of the, of the Bible, the text of the sermon should be the hero. So if all you can remember today, when you walk out the door, remember those four words, 
do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Because your faith can be destroyed. Remember those four words. So Paul is not only warning here about the Judaizers. He's also warning them about the internal deception. There's external deception that comes in the form of false teaching. But then there's internal deception that could stem from what? Our own hearts. Verse you all know, Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is desperately wicked, desperately sick, some translations say. From out of the heart, Jesus says, comes all kinds of impurities. So therefore, knowing that our heart remains unglorified, we must be aware of our propensity to deceive ourselves into thinking that God will not hold us accountable to what we do. That's what Paul's getting at here in this context. To think because I'm saved, God isn't concerned with my sin anymore, is to make an attempt to make a mockery mockery of God. To which Paul responds with, God is not mocked. Men may try to mock God in their words, in their works, but you can't do it. He's not mocked. He's not going to turn and hide in shame. To to be mocked literally means to turn up your nose, to scorn or to sneer. has the idea of belittling, despairing. You know, when when do you and you sinners like me, you and I, sinners like you and I, we attempt to mock God? When do we attempt to mock God? We, we, We mock God when we sin, thinking that we're immune from God's standards of holiness. And just because we possess the imputed righteousness of Christ through faith, we cannot be deceived into thinking that we can get by with whatever we want. God is not mocked. Don't be deceived about that. So on the other hand, God creates you. God has given you spiritual life. And he can declare you righteous based on your faith in Jesus Christ. And there's no condemnation. But on the other hand, being now justified in God's sight does in no way, shape, or form free us from the cause and effect of, to use Paul's analogy, sowing and reaping. See the progression here in the text. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived by the Judaizers. So for you all, don't be deceived by all the false teachers out there. There's a lot. And I know there are, some pe- there are some people that either have been involved in our church or is now that listens to false teaching. And I've been very careful. I've, been try- I've tried to be wise not to name a bunch of names because I don't want to cause drama. But there are lots of false teachers out there. And by teaching you the scripture verse by verse, I'm praying that we will all become like-minded and deciding who those people are. So don't be deceived by false teachers. Don't be deceived by your heart, because your heart will lead you astray. But even if that does happen, guess what? God is not mocked. We're not showing God anything. 
Back to verse 7. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Fundamental principle, right? To sow an apple seed, what do you get? Get apples. There's a natural, direct, unbreakable cause and effect with regard to sowing and reaping. So here Paul appeals to a basic rudimentary uh, law in agriculture. And he uses it as an illustration for the spiritual. So the same goes in our spiritual life. We sow sin, we reap the consequences. That's, That's as simple as it gets. To boil it down, this verse simply means you sow sin, you will reap the consequences either temporally or in eternity. Look at verse 8. For, meaning explaining what he's getting ready to, what he just said, he's going to expound on what he just said. For the one who sows to his own flesh, simply put, sowing to the flesh is, is uh, submission to the natural sinful desires and passions instead of overcoming it. Sowing to the flesh a submission to the natural sinful desires and passions instead of overcoming it. Example, David. David saw Bathsheba. He liked it. He, was, he had lust for her. But instead of overcoming that sinful desire, he sued to the flesh. He sowed to the flesh. And for those of you who know that story well, the consequences were really bad, weren't they? The result of the death of the child resulted in his daughter getting raped. It resulted in his own son being murdered by his own officer. So you sow to the flesh, Paul says, you will reap corruption. Now corruption... Think of a degenerative piece of fruit going from bad to worse. It's going to keep on rotting until it just stinks up your house, right? How many of you, how many of you like to stick to routine? Yeah, I, I'm like that just as much as anybody. Every morning I wake up with just enough time to get ready and to uh, get my lunch and, and grab my breakfast on the go, which is just a banana usually. So, so I, I go to grab a banana. Hopefully there's one there. And, but I'm really picky about it. Yeah, Jen knows exactly what I'm going to say. I'm very picky about my bananas. Either if it's too green, I can't even peel it. It's, an, it, it's, it's, it's annoying. But, it, but if it's too yellow, it's just gross. I don't want to eat a yellow bruised banana. So what do I do? I just leave it there. And, and I'll just go find something else. If the bananas are at the right stage. So, there's been times where I've gone to retrieve a banana from the table, and I find a banana that's almost black. And I don't want to even touch it. It has gotten to the point where the corruption set in, it's unstoppable, it's going to end in nothing but a worthless piece of fruit, that nobody even wants to touch, let alone eat. So Paul here, he's saying that if one does not cease to sow to the flesh, in time, 
that man spiritually will degenerate unceasingly into a filthy, harmful, dangerous spiritual state. Like David. David got to the point where he wrote, Restore unto me the joy. So if we reap sin, if we sow to the flesh, we give into our sinful desires, we will reap the earthly heartaches, the earthly wounds, the earthly pain of that sowing. So what can happen? What can happen to a believer? Okay, a believer that's free from condemnation, free from the wrath of God. Yet, what happens to a believer who sins? In other words, what could a believer reap? Well, you could suffer physical death. Acts 5. Remember Ananias and Sapphira? God, they lied to the Holy Spirit and God just dropped them dead like a sack of potatoes. Now, you guys know I'm not a very mystical, charismatic thinker. But we have to understand and leave room for the possibility that when somebody dies suddenly, it's possible that that is judgment. Something to think about. Well, what else can happen to a believer who sins? Well, he, he can suffer physical consequences from a sinful lifestyle. AIDS. STDs, you know, organ failure. Those are consequences of reaping, of sowing to the flesh. There's lifelong consequences because you understand that forgiveness of sin does not mean God will erase the consequences of it, right? I learned that the hard way. When I got saved, I I went to go apply for all these government jobs And shockingly, they could care less about my transformation. I I mean, maybe they could have even been an evangelical Christian. Knowing that I had been radically transformed by the gospel didn't change the fact that I made some stupid mistakes in my youth. So we we have to accept the fact that God is always willing to extend forgiveness, but the consequences he doesn't take away. He doesn't descend and wipe our record clean, does he? Like having a baby out of wedlock. Lifelong consequence. Having a criminal record. Having financial ruin. A pastor who fails to immorality disqualifies himself from ministry. A Christian who chooses to marry a non-believer is now unequally yoked and now has to live with that for life consequence of sin. Sowing to the flesh. How about sin causing you to suffer emotionally, mentally, spiritually, having to live with an offended conscience? Heart, your heart becoming hard, being blind, having deep sorrow like Cain and Saul? Or how about having self-pity like Jonah? sat under the tree and just said, just kill me now, I'd rather die. Having having a broken fellowship with the Lord, having your prayers hindered, 
Those are all consequences of sowing to the flesh. But, Paul says, the one who sows to the Spirit, the one who sows to the field of the Spirit, will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Now, he's not saying that we buy our way into heaven. The context alone is necessary to be reminded of so that we don't eisegetically interpret this verse. Remember, according to uh, verse 1 of chapter 6, he's talking to brethren. And once a person is justified, he does not become unjustified, right? Justified is done. Once, once the judge slams the gavel on the platform and says, innocent, you're free to go, he doesn't in a few minutes later say, you know what? Come back. Let's start over again. Right? Once it, you're justified, it's done. So Paul here, when he's talking about reaping eternal life, he's talking about the quality, not duration. Quality of life, not the duration of life. In other words, the temporal rewards, the temporal fruit, benefits of sowing to the Spirit are that of heavenly, eternal quality. So now we keep the immediate context in here, mind in here. One way to sow to the Spirit is to support the ministry of the Word. That will produce good fruit, right? That will, that will reap, you will reap eternal benefit from that to have a solid, healthy, in-depth teaching ministry. But the application is wider, of course. We can, to simply put, sowing to the Spirit can be summarized in this way. Spirit-enabled obedience of God's instructions for holy living. Spirit-enabled obedience of God's instruction for holy living. That's all sowing to the Spirit is. To sow the seed of love, joy, Faithfulness, self-control, peace, kindness, and all those other seeds of godliness. What will be the harvest to reap from that? It'll be good. How many of you have ever seen that movie, Courageous? Yeah, that's, that's a pretty good movie. You should watch that one. It's a, it's a Christian one. And in that movie... One of the characters is interviewed for a management position. And what does he do? The boss acts like he's a crooked guy, and he, he, he tells this Christian man who's being interviewed for the managerial position, a position that he needs because he can't make enough money to provide for his family. Spoiler alert. The man, the Christian man, says, Sir, I cannot do that. And at the end, it shows that it was just a test. The CEO, the boss, whatever he was, he just wanted to know that the man he was going to give that responsibility to was a man with integrity. So all those other flaky liars, they didn't get the job. The one that stood the test with integrity and truth he got the job. That's just an example. That's an example of what sowing to the Spirit can produce in your life. So spiritual labor pays off spiritual. Sinful labor pays off in corruption. The Proverbs say that adversity pursues sinners. Adversity pursues sinners. The way the transgressor is hard. 
That's the second. I better hurry up. So don't be misled. Don't be misled by false teaching. Don't be misled by your own heart. Thirdly, don't be faint-hearted. In verse 9 it says, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. Some translations say, grow weary up here. It simply means, do not become sluggish in doing good. And in general terms, Paul's talking about just the work of the ministry. Don't become sluggish in the ministry. Why? Well, there's an incentive. There is an incentive for you to not grow weary in ministry. Look at verse 9 again. For in due time, we will reap if we do not grow weary. We understand that the harvest that is to be reaped from our labor is not immediate, is it? To till, to plow, to plant, to replant, to water, to cultivate, it takes time. And you know what? I have to be reminded of this almost every week. We must be patient for the harvest. And in the meantime, not grow weary. Revelation 22 says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he's done. So our reward, if not here in the now, will be in the life to come. It's easy to grow weary, isn't it? It's easy to grow weary because we're all weak. And when we get weary, it becomes easy to oppose. It becomes easy to give up. It becomes easy to feel burned out. It becomes easy to criticize. It becomes an excuse just to stay home and avoid the work of the ministry. But listen. Everybody listen. We must guard ourselves against the attitude of retirement from the local church. We must guard ourselves from retirement from serving the Lord's church. The New Testament knows nothing of people stepping away from the church. So, for those of you who are older, for those of you who are in retirement or going to be in retirement, who are empty nesters, we need you. We need you. We need your wisdom. We need you to hold back the reins sometimes. We need you to be Titus too, men and women. You know, it's okay to step back and say, I'm a little tired. I need to take some things off my plate. But it is totally antithetical to biblical teaching for any Christian to say, I'm just going to step back and do nothing. Generally. Generally speaking. So don't be faint-hearted. And finally, the last principle for today, don't be immoral. Verse 10. Paul says, So then, which is a logical conclusion to the preceding statements, while we have the opportunity, okay, opportunity here it's not referring to isolated single events, but it's, it refers to a fixed period of time. 
In other words, our whole life is an opportunity. Our whole life is an opportunity to do good because our earthly existence is a limited opportunity, isn't it? To serve our master who purchased us and made us his slave. So when we have the opportunity, Paul goes on to say, do good to all people. Now this do-gooding, to make it a participle, do-gooding refers to not simply um, easy temporal acts of charity, you know, like giving the homeless man a $5 bill or whatever. The word usage here, it helps us understand Paul's intended meaning is, is to refer to moral and spiritual excellence that is a fruit of the Spirit. Moral and spiritual excellence that's a result of the fruit of the Spirit. You know, our moral excellence as Christians is good for society. Whether or not people like to admit it, the fact that we stand up and say it's wrong to kill your baby, that's good for society. The fact that we stand up and say this is right, this is wrong, it's good for society. Because if we don't, we're just going to keep moving toward a world of relativism and it's going to be chaos. Our moral standards frame our worldview, which compels us to give, to adopt, to help, to feed, to evangelize, and to give counsel. It's our moral excellence that compels us to do that. You know, before I got saved, how often do you think I desired to help orphans? How much do you think that consumed my mind? Zero. Because I was a young man living for myself. Now, the moral excellence that I glean from the Word of God informs my worldview. Hey, that is a primary thing we need to be concerned about. It's those communicable attributes of God that's reflected in our lives. And that's indicative of our spiritual excellence. So that's the good. That's the good that Paul wants us to do. It's to have moral excellence in the sight of others. And then listen, look at this last phrase. Look at this last phrase of this verse. This might be new to some of you. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. What in the world is the household of faith? It's the church. Believers. They are to be your top priority. Our first charge of duty is to edify and build up, serve, give the local church. You have it right there, especially to those with the household of faith. Why? Why is it necessary to be devoted primarily to the household of faith? Well, because the world's greatest need is what the church can give. If we don't have healthy, organized, edified, equipped believers, churches, who is going to evangelize the world? Who is going to be the one to show the love of Christ? It's not meant to be done by Lone Ranger Christians. It's meant to be done by the household of faith. 
So we are to love the church. Especially because Christ loves the church as his bride. Listen to this. With a deeper and more profound and committed love than the world. Jesus loves the church more than the world. I'll prove it to you. Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ also loved the church. Who did Christ give his life for? Ephesians 5.25 says, He gave himself up for her. The Bible says that he loves the world. I know. But the Bible says he gave himself for the church. Now, husbands, I'm assuming that you love the brethren. I'm also assuming that your own wife has a special place in your heart. The love for your wife is more or greater or more intense than any other person. If it's not, then it should be. So if anyone ever slanders your wife, if anyone ever gossips your wife or mistreats your bride, how many men would be quick to say, how dare you? You don't talk to my wife that way. Men, would you allow that? Would you allow someone to sit there and slander and harm your wife? No. So listen, it should be the same when somebody gossips, mistreats, slanders, neglects, and defames the church. Because guess what? The church is the bride of your Creator. He gave himself for her. And Ephesians 5.27 says that he might present to himself the church in all her glory. That she, the church, would be holy and blameless. For no one ever hid his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. So notice, in that verse, in those, in those th- um, three or four verses... The church is referenced seven times. So it's clearly God's will for us to be devoted to the church. Not to be devoted to the church is immoral. Because it's sinful. Let us do good to all people, especially those who are in the household of faith. So... In those two messages, I've discovered, displayed, dispensed eight principles of being a good, healthy church member. Okay. Now, let me just say, I don't. When I say member, I'm not primarily referring to uh, being a member of this local church. That's important, but that's not the heart of this series. What I mean by member is in the First Corinthians 12 sense which says, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. 
So we are members of the body of Christ when we believed. So with that in mind, our church is going to continue on the trajectory of, of health, of good health, if we're committed to these eight principles. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't be conceited. Don't be non-confrontational. Don't be secluded. Don't be selfish or stingy. Don't be misled. Don't be faint-hearted. And don't be immoral. That's enough to chew on for a while, isn't it? I need to chew on it some more. And I pray you will too. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for these truths. Thank you that you have given us the precious word of God so we can know how to be healthy church members, how we can be healthy Christians. I pray, Lord, that these things spoken, all these these many things, these these weighty verses will be impressed on our hearts. We'll put them into practice, Lord, so we can be useful tools in your hand. In Jesus' name, amen.